hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to The Important Cinema Club, and today we're going to be talking about Roger Ebert. And Roger Ebert, a subject I know inside and out, and a subject that I think I have feel a little ambivalent about these days. Really? And that you're probably not a particular fan of, right? Well, I can appreciate Roger Ebert, but it really comes down to the fact that he had no place in my life as a young cinephile. Mm -hmm. When people talk about Roger Ebert, they talk about him as the critic that was the most approachable. He was like the solid base. He was in your TVs every week to give you what movies are good and bad. And at the same time, he was also considered like a mainstream critic to be looked down upon. He was... Kind of the midpoint between a scholar and a hack. Exactly. Uh, he was obviously a very smart guy, a very well-read guy. He knew film history very well, but he appealed to people most as an ambassador for cinema. Somebody who, with his great movies reviews, for instance, gave people a roadmap to the canon. And with Siskel and Ebert... I can't imagine how many bloggers or YouTube critics or even, you know, high-level film critics now probably watched that and said, hey, I can do that. Yeah, because back in the day, critics like Pauline Kael were like intellectuals, right? When they talk about film in a very specific and personal way. And while Roger Ebert was very passionate about what he was doing, he also spoke about it often in a very general way. Mm -hmm. Like, what will everybody enjoy? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how he got into film because that was not what he wanted to write about principally. Well, I know that he was a newspaper man, basically, in his early 20s. He worked in newspapers when he was in college and he hoped one day to become a novelist. But he was assigned to the film criticism beat by his editor when he was something like 24 or 25. That was around the time when, thanks to Pauline Kael and certain others, movie critics were starting to become... Cool. Yeah, cool. And Ebert, because he was the youngest film critic in the country at that time, found himself on the right side of the generation gap on certain movies. Bonnie and Clyde, 2001 A Space Odyssey. These are movies that came out the first year he was a critic. He was the one that was like crushing influencers like Bosley Krauser, mm -hmm. who for a long time, like they made a break to movie, but their tastes were completely out of tune while people like Pauline Kael and Roger Ebert had their pulse on what was going on. But the other thing is Roger Ebert was very square. Very square. And I think for guys like us who are interested in some alternative type films, there are times when we look at somebody like Roger Ebert almost as an enemy. And that can be summarized in something that was very popular, which was his review for Night of the Living Dead that appeared in Reader's mm -hmm. Digest. A famous review that we've spoken about before, which Roger Ebert doesn't necessarily react to the content of the film, but is disgusted by the fact that children are in the audience watching it. He doesn't even seem to... Like, the, the movie is very secondary to his reaction, and when he reposted the review on his website, he, like, gave it a little disclaimer at the start where he's like, well, this wasn't a reaction to the movie per se. Uh, you know, I actually admire the film, blah, 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 blah. But, I mean, I don't think he did. He was, he was somebody who, on his show Siskel and Ebert... In its early days, he and Siskel had a segment called Dog of the Week where they would just go to a grindhouse and find some piece of shit to rag on. And oftentimes that piece of shit would be like a Shaw Brothers kung fu movie or an Italian horror movie or something that people like us would like. Even though that he was like a mainstream film critic, he still had to position himself as an intellectually superior to something, which is why like something like Dog of the Week 
can let audiences know, we know that this is bad. To his credit, he's somebody who, I guess, even though he was always a very middle-of-the-road critic, he's somebody who had the capacity to grow. In his great movies review for The Good and the Bad and the Ugly, the first time he reviewed the movie, he gave it three stars. And in his great movie review, he said, as I look back on my old review, I see that I gave three stars to a four-star movie, probably because I had a bias against Spaghetti Westerns. Mm -hmm. Did you used to watch Roger Ebert on television when you were a kid? Uh, Yes, I did. Um, You're more of a Richard and Roper man? (laughs) Well, I definitely saw it more because I I got a little older at the time when when Roper was on. Siskel and Ebert was on like at midnight on in Toronto. So I would get- (laughs) Where he deserves to be in the blue slot. (laughs) So I would get my parents to tape it. And, you know, for me at that age, and I think for a lot of people, part of the novelty was the idea of seeing like two guys fight over movies and they did fight that's what was entertaining about it that siskel often had the poorer taste of the both of them where you'd be like wait what what are you talking about siskel was even bougier than ebert was i think but there there were two guys who i think genuinely didn't particularly like each other yeah i mean it's gone on record that they didn't right and i know that you know after siskel die ebert wrote tributes to him and everything as you are expected to do i'm sure they had mutual respect and everything but they clearly were just they were professional rivals and their personality types were very different like ebert was more garrulous uh in his personal life you know siskel was a family man who kind of kept to himself yeah ebert liked to fuck Ebert liked to fuck. Although there is a very funny uh, section in the documentary Life Itself when we find out that Siskel spent a year basically at the Playboy Mansion. <laughs> and there's a great photo of Siskel like with a big like Harry Reams mustache and this like topless woman next to him. And he's just like staring at her tits. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that what Ebert and Siskel are most famous for and reviled for is minimizing the art of film criticism to a sums up or a sums down. That if you read people like Jonathan Rosenbaum or his ilk, they'll always rag on them for making that popular. Mm. And that ties into your statement, Ebert was a fan first and foremost, and he wanted people to go see these movies Mm -hmm. more than specifically like breaking them down. Well, that's true. He definitely didn't have a combative relationship with movies. In a lot of his reviews, he he took the critical philosophy of like, you've got to grade these movies on their own terms. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm watching Shallon Soccer, I have to rate it on the scale of what about these fantasy kung fu soccer films, even though he gave it only three stars? Well, that was a baffling review, by the way, because I think Shaolin Soccer... Is a masterpiece. Well, it's a great film, and he bent over backwards trying to justify his three-star grade. It's like, <laughs> dude, it's better than most of the shit you give four stars. Just give it four stars, yeah, you liar. On, come on. But does Roger Ebert have good taste? Yes. But what I would say is that because he's the most famous critic, the quintessential critic, he's representative of something. Uh, He's representative of mainstream taste. White, liberal, upper middle class, educated mainstream taste. And within those parameters, like his, his taste is a bellwether of what a reasonably educated, reasonably liberal upper middle class guy would think at any given moment in history. And that's why Ebert still has fans to this day, Mm -hmm. because his writing is appealing. Mm -hmm. Like, his books are still sold. He's not just the guy that was on TV that was popular. You see people talk rhapsodically all the time on the internet about how an important 
critic Roger Ebert was for them. So he still has value to this day. Certainly. And I think he has value as, you know, a roadmap to the canon mm. uh, with his great movies reviews or his Citizen Kane commentary track. But where there's no value in what he did is how much he loved to trash horror movies. He hated especially exploitative horror movies like Friday the 13th and its ilk. Well, I mean, he had a uh, critical philosophy. I mean, he's somebody who didn't like nihilism in movies, mm-hmm. what he perceived as in those. I, I guess this is a sticking point for you, right? At a certain point, I have to realize that Roger Ebert is not the be-all, end-all. Like, mm-hmm. if I disagree with him about something, that's fine, especially if I can quantify why I think I'm right, and in this particular case, he's wrong. But when he would write bad reviews for horror movies, what people would always say, and still say to this day, is, but he wrote Russ Meyer's Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. So the way that Beyond the Valley of the Dolls came about is that uh, the studio wanted to make a sequel to the Mega Smash Valley of the Dolls, which was about um, young women falling prey to drugs and having their lives destroyed by it. But after the author of the novel sent in two drafts that they found unacceptable, uh, Roger Ebert and Russ Meyer cobbled something together in six weeks Mm -hmm. and went to camera with it. And it's basically a pastiche. Yes. It has nothing to do with the original Jacqueline Suzanne novel. And it's kind of a postmodern soup of a lot of different cliches. I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's a wonderful movie too. Yeah. I think Ebert as a writer brings a kind of literate quality. A lovable squareness trying to be hip. it's It's definitely square, but like his script is full of like delightful lines like you will drink the black sperm of my vengeance <laughs> yeah. or I mean they're all given the Z-man who gets yeah. to like spout these long soliloquies filled with like rapping and wordplay. It's full of literary illusions. It is the script oddly enough of a Pulitzer Prize winner. You can you can definitely tell and it's the script of somebody who's very media savvy. Mm-hmm. Like this is somebody who's clearly spent a lot of time watching movies and internalizing their clichés and the movie when you watch it, it doesn't amount to a whole lot Mm-mm. except pure sensation. Yeah, well, it's like yeah. a pop art kind of experience, right? Yeah. While you're watching it. Uh, I think that Russ Meyer, who we're not going to talk about too much because we're probably going to do an episode later on, mm-hmm. is like the Eisenstein of boobs. <laughs> like the way that he crafts a sequence in such a interesting way, all usually through edits because Myers was famous for not like moving the camera. Mm-hmm. Works really well with Ebert's script in delineating all these like super soap opera-ish sequences. Yeah, like watching it this time, I was kind of amazed again by how indigestible the movie is oh my god right from the top you're like 15 minutes in and you got like four montages and you're going wait what is this movie about like maybe we should say that the plot of the movie is a band called well they're in real life they're called the strawberry alarm qualock but in the movie they're called uh the cherry nations yeah they're the, the uh the kelly experience and then the carry nations the Car- afterwards the carry nations and uh they're three sweet girls who want to go make it in hollywood and make it and make it <laughs> as the tagline said uh yeah so what ends uh, up happening is they play some rock and tunes the music is great in this movie uh, Oh, unbelievable. I have the soundtrack album and I listen to it quite a bit. (laughs) As it has to happen, they fall into debauchery, which in Russ Meyer's terms is a lot of breasts. (laughs) They are pulled into the web of Z-Man, a Phil Spector-ish record producer uh, who, you know, spoiler alert, in the twist ending, it turns out is actually a woman. Which was made up on set? (laughs) 
Well, it was made up as uh, Ebert was writing it, and I've heard Ebert describe the writing process as he and Meyer shared an office, and Meyer only wanted to hear the typewriter banging. If there was a long pause, like he would say, "Why the why the fuck aren't you writing?" Like, <laughs> like he didn't understand that writers sometimes need to pause and you know consider the the script has this frenzied free stream of consciousness, yeah. And uh, according to Ebert, when he called in from the other room and said, "I've got it," Z Man's a woman. Meyer said, "I like it." You can never have too many tits in a movie. <laughs> because if Myers and Ebert shared something in common, is that they were both breast men. Although I was flipping through Ebert's autobiography today, and they had a uh, different relationship with breasts. Russ Meyer liked big, muscular, rock-hard breasts. Like, he really got into, like, breast implants later in his yeah. life. Didn't Where, matter. Whereas Ebert liked uh, softer, pendulous breasts. <laughs> well, you get a mix of both of them in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which hits all those beats of, like, the star rises, the star falls, and then tacks on a out-there epilogue with a little bit of the most dangerous game in it. And people may ask... How could Ebert, the square guy, sweater-wearing TV personality, write this movie? It's because the movie is very square. Mm -hmm. Absolutely square. It has been accused of homophobia, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is... I don't know. Maybe, maybe I don't think me or you are the ones to tackle that subject. (laughs) Maybe. I know that Ebert has often cited the fact that B. Ruby Rich, the feminist critic, is a uh, fan of the movie. So Yeah, and when you talk about Ebert as a moralist... It's impossible to kind of reconcile the film that has a gun, like, very seductively shoved down a woman's throat as she's sleeping naked. I know that was a co- controversial at the time. In fact, Siskel gave the movie a bad review because of its mix of comedy and, and violence. Which is something that Ebert would tackle over and over and over again in his reviews. Have you seen any of the other Meyer-Ebert collaborations? No, I haven't. I- I'm a quite a fan of Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens. I think mm. it's quite funny. I, You know, I'm going to be honest that I haven't actually seen seen that many Russ Meyer films. I, I'm, I would say, a Fairweather Russ Meyer mm-hmm. fan. We can get into this uh, when we do the episode on him, but I would say that the Criterion Blu-ray of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls has footage from a reunion of the cast and crew, and Ebert makes this long case in the reunion that he didn't think of Meyer's films as primarily pornographic. He thought they were not primarily meant to be titillating. They were meant to be funny or something. You can see him deliver this soliloquy on a panel next to Meyer. And I think that's Ebert just kind of trying to cover his ass. And Meyer loves breasts. Like, like he loves them. Like you are actually... Meyer was turned on by this stuff. Yes. And I think that if you don't necessarily share Meyer's fetish for... Uh, ginormous rock hard breasts and uh, kind of a Robert Crumish taste in w- women, like strong Amazonian women. You're not going to like it as much as Russ Meyer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but Ebert was at one point going to write the script for a Sex Pistols film that was never produced. Which was to be directed by Meyer, in fact. Exactly. Um, he kind of just left the screenwriting game because he was a big shot enough critic that he didn't have to do it anymore. He won the first Pulitzer Prize for film criticism. I think there comes a point when, you know, he, he's often said that he thought it was unseemly to be a critic, but also have uh, screenplays at Hollywood Studios. But I think there comes a point when he probably had to have realized that, you know, novels and screenplays were not where his talents lay. Mm-hmm. I, th- I mean, if you look at his writing style, even in his autobiography, What you find is that it's just very simple, straightforward, Mm -hmm. unadorned, and that doesn't necessarily translate probably to the novels he wanted to write. Yeah. Because when I hear Ebert talk, 
I see a man who really wants to be literate and intellectual. Yes. But that's not specifically where his gifts lay. He he had a relaxed formality to his prose that could be very good. And mm. did you read his blog when he was writing it in his final years? I did, yes. I, I thought some of his blog entries were very strong. Mm. Uh, well, I think that... There's it, an unfussiness to the prose and a lack of sentimentality to some of his blog entries about, say, Siskel or his wife that were very strong. When you were talking about Ebert in the context of someone that could learn, I think that his uh, love of the internet and the possibilities it could give him mm. is something that was pretty amazing mm. and did keep him in the cultural conversation till the day of his death. And something else that kept him in the cultural conversation is his dislike for David Lynch's Blue Velvet. Yeah. Probably his most famous review? Well, with Ebert, you didn't often go to him for an against-the-grain take. Mm-hmm. You went for him to be kind of, what is the official opinion about a movie? I want to know all the popular mainstream films, so I'm going to go to Ebert to let me know what's important yeah. and what should I watch. It's the equivalent of one of those like top 100 IMDb lists. Yeah, if you read one of his great movies reviews, you kind of get and I don't mean this in really a bad way, the received wisdom about the movie. Mm-hmm. Yet why is this supposed to be great? And, you know, that does have value mm-hmm. because, like, people who want to watch important films can crack that book open, read about it, and then go watch it. Yeah. They'll know what they have to go see. Or if they watched it and they didn't get it, they can get some sense of why they should have got it. Exactly. He's like, well, he does what we do. <laughs> you know? We're the new Siskel and <laughs> But Blue Velvet is one that he famously... Did not like. And I was under the impression before we started recording this episode that he had changed his mind on it. But you pointed out that he admitted that he understood why it was culturally important. Mm-hmm. And even when he reviewed it, it was already being hailed as a masterpiece in some circles. But he still didn't like it. Uh, so I'll read a, a maybe a short excerpt from the review that kind of gives a sense of his uh, objections. He says, The sexual material in Blue Velvet is so disturbing and the performance by Rosalini is so convincing and courageous that it demands a movie that deserves it. American movies have been using satire for years to take the edge off sex and violence. Occasionally, perhaps, sex and violence should be treated with the seriousness they deserve. Given the power of the darker scenes in this movie, we're all the more frustrated that the director is unwilling to follow through to the consequences of his insights. And, And then later on, he says... Rosalini is asked to do things in this film that require real nerve. In one scene, she's publicly embarrassed by being dumped naked on the lawn of the police detective. In others, she's asked to portray emotions that I imagine most actresses would rather not touch. She is degraded, slapped around, humiliated, and undressed in front of the camera. And when you ask an actress to endure those experiences, you should keep your side of the bargain by putting her in an important film. This is one of those Roger Ebert reviews. And it's rare because, like you said, he would echo the mainstream where he just doesn't get it. Mm -hmm. I can understand where he's coming from, Mm -hmm. but I have to disagree completely with it. Like in the review, he also talks about that something that really bothered him is the fact that this darkness is then contrasted with humor in a way that really rubbed him the wrong way. It wasn't the fact that like suburban um, life is really dark underneath that bothered him. In fact, he actually makes fun of the cliche of that in his review. Yeah. But it's like the comedy mixed in with the darkness that really bothered him. He thinks the the comedy cheapens the darkness. Well, his review with Gene Siskel, who liked the movie on TV, is kind of interesting because... You know, Siskel takes a pretty conventional approach to the movie where he says, uh, you're seeing the surface of the town, but then you look underneath and you see Mm -hmm. the darkness. But 
when you actually watch the movie, and I think David Foster Wallace articulated this in his article about Lynch, there is no one scene in the movie that's either completely funny or completely upsetting and horrifying. Because that's the beautiful thing about it, yeah. is that as a viewer, you're not quite sure how to feel. Yeah. Like, Kyle MacLachlan in the movie is this, like, hardy boy, best guy but then as the movie goes on, that darkness that's inside him starts to come out. Yeah. So the viewer is faced with this conflicted feeling of, who am I supposed to root for in this scenario? And then when Laura Dern finds out about his involvement with Isabella Rossellini, he almost kind of wants to say to her, no, that's not really me. Yes. Right? Yeah. But then you then, I guess, look at yourself and say, well, what would I be in that situation? Is there that kind of darkness in me? And would I recognize that as me? Do you think that Ebert was looking at himself in the mirror and he felt conflicted by what he saw? Because Ebert, as a critic, like on TV, mm -hmm. is like the straight-laced, clean-cut like mainstream guy, but it's been pretty well documented that that's not how he was in his life. He was a bit of a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, a poon hound? <laughs> yes, he was. <laughs> liked to drink, liked to party. Yeah. Probably did uh, some salacious stuff yeah. that uh, thankfully didn't come back to haunt him in his life. Well, we don't know if he did anything criminal. Probably, <laughs> I don't. I, I don't know about that. I use the word salacious, not criminal. He fucked. Yeah, he loved to fuck. Good, good for him. But it's it's such a peculiar review. But it is a disturbing movie. It's disturbing to think that good and evil are forces that are intertwined mm -hmm. and not clearly de delineated in any way. And it's easier to see if you're if you're watching a brutal rape or torture scene of the kind that Blue Velvet has. It's easier if it's just presented as horrible because we all know, you know, we all know that it is horrible. Mm. Um, to, to have elements of humor in it is, or even is, titillation, or titillation is a, a challenge. And it comes down to the fact that Ebert, as the mainstream guy, also had to be aware of how dummy audiences would react to movies, right? Yeah, it, it, that is a recurring concern throughout his career. Which is it? unfortunate. But, like, have you read his Death Race 2000 review? No. He gave it zero stars, but again, it's like the Night of the Living Dead review. Oh, yeah, I remember he, you talking about this. Yeah, he reviews the audience, basically, and, uh, or he talks a lot about that in his concern about the Friday the 13th movies. Will these movies influence an audience that don't know any better, and by consequence make them less emotional or empathetic people yeah he he was always banging the drum of empathy yeah uh, which you know i can understand his position but as we talked about the last episode that also means that you're treating your audience like stupid people it's true but and he, but he and siskel even though they were kind of liberal guys uh always had this especially in the 80s during like the reagan era we're always kind of going on about um video nasties or i spit on your grave mm -hmm. or some other sort of they often had some culture war thing they were dealing with. Yeah, it boiled down to, like, how dare they and think of the children. Yeah, think of the children. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Which, you know... <sighs> or Silent Night, Deadly Night was another one. I remember <laughs> Siskel had a couple episodes where he was campaigning against the TV ads for that movie. So when do you think was the time that you started rebelling against Ebert as the main critical figure in your life? I think Ebert is somebody who, as a cinephile, like, one has to eventually graduate from. Mm -hmm. And... I followed him very closely up until his death, and I still like him, but there was something about after his death, I think some connection with him and me broke. Hmm. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that because he was the main critic, because he was the definitive critic, the audience followed him on that journey, and we're always following him week after week, seeing what does the main critic think. And once he died, that relationship was severed. 
and you're left with the body of work itself. And you felt that that body of work could then be criticized and by consequence not reflect well on Ebert? Well, it's just like one of the essential things was that that ongoing relationship you had with the audience. And mm. when that relationship was severed... Um, one that continually evolved yeah, as he went along. Yeah. And that's what was appealing about it. Yeah. Like you were almost waiting for that moment where Ebert would go, you know what? I was wrong about the Friday the 13th film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that never happened, unfortunately. And also, just as you become, I think, a more imaginative or, dare I say, sophisticated film goer, uh, you're more interested in alternative... And you want to courses. rebel against what's mainstream. Uh, yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, but like once you discover people like Rosenbaum or Hoberman... Or, or even Pauline Kael. Pauline Kael, you yeah. know, like... You know, Ebert seems a little safer. And by consequence, not as much fun to read. Yeah. But your parents go, hey, Roger Ebert liked this movie. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, uh, is there any Ebert writing? Uh, there's still a lot of Ebert writing that I like. Uh, have you read his uh, Khan memoir? Yeah, uh, I have. Yeah. Which you say is one of his your favorite pieces of Ebert writing. Mm -hmm. I really like it because it's like a personal kind of descriptive side of Ebert that we rarely see. Mm -hmm. Because he would have to work in these these short word count. Um, essays mm -hmm. and by consequence of that you don't get like too much of a personal side mm -hmm. to him and this con essay even though it is a writing of a very successful man just hanging out at con having whatever he wants and getting tired from watching all these movies mm -hmm. it's still fun to read it's the best example of that genre of writing yes. it has a lightness to it mm -hmm. and it evokes the atmosphere of con it's, it's a book called two weeks in the midday sun and mm -hmm. it's well worth reading and for a man that wrote so much criticism, there has to be some really weird ones that come out. Like his Scooby-Doo review. Oh, with the Scooby... Or, or what about the Garfield review? Uh, yeah, the Garfield review as well. But the Scooby-Doo review is like Ebert almost disassociating from like reality itself, trying to quantify how the Scooby-Doo film can exist. <laughs> Well, the, there's his review of Garfield, The Tale of Two Kitties. He wrote in character as Garfield. <laughs> That's like a man who's watched too many movies that day. Ba baffling. And um, has deadlines to reach. I guess one last thing I would say in favor of Ebert is, you know, as a kid watching Siskel and Ebert, he definitely made me aware of certain films. He made me aware of certain grown-up films. Even like, if it's just like, you know, mainstream classics like Antonioni. Yeah. Uh, maybe the internet has made a show like Siskel and Ebert irrelevant, but in the 80s when there weren't a lot of options to find out about movies or an art house movies, you know, Siskel and Ebert talking about My Dinner with Andre was a big boost for that movie. Yeah, it's important that someone who everybody knows talks about films that are difficult. Mm -hmm. Like if he talks about how important Ingmar Bergman films are, mm -hmm. maybe someone who would not check them out would go see them and find their mind blown in some way, yeah. which matters. Two thumbs up for Roger Ebert. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we do have letters this week, Will. All right. We have a letter from William Pond. And he goes, hey, guys, my name is Will, and I am a TV editor based in London, England. Hey. Hello. Will, don't do accents, please. <laughs> but no, fuck you. Justin did that voice. <laughs> I was recommended your podcast by a friend about a month ago, and since then I have been enjoying working through your back catalog. I particularly enjoyed the episode on Stephen Chow and Wong Kar Wai, a famous episode where me and Will heavily disagreed about a movie. We were the Siskel and Ebert of the podcast world. <laughs> and one of the rare episodes where someone was listening to us record and jumps in a few times. <laughs> back when we were more scruffy and less polished than we are now. Yeah, yeah. Now, now we have a response responsibility to the listener. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I don't always agree with your opinions, but I like the way you argue them. I took particular exception to the dissing of Marlon Brando's performance in Superman. Wow. 
Yeah. Um, what, what do you say about that? I mean, you know, you know, okay, here's the funny thing. The weird thing about having a podcast is that conversations you had a year and a half ago can come back to haunt you. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what I said about Marlon Brando and Superman, but I do think he's not good in it. <laughs> well, it's been very well documented that Marlon Brando did not want to be in that film at some point trying to convince Richard Donner to replace him by a glowing green crystal. Really? Yeah. But at the same time, I can understand the impact his performance would have on people that grew up with that film. Yeah, okay. And he is a major actor, right? So there is a level of gravitas that he brings to it. You know, uh, first of all, I, I'm, I'm to the listener, I'm glad you liked Marlon Brando in the film. But every now and then, God love our listeners, but sometimes they'll pick Strange Hills to die on. <laughs> oh, are you going to bring it up? Yeah, I'm going to bring up the fact that uh, one time we got a comment from uh, somebody who... On Vigorously. One, one of our very early episodes when we talked about Woody Allen's film Anything Else really took exception to our, our I think, received wisdom dismissal of Anything Else. <laughs> Talking about very shocked that we said that it felt like an, a, a ripoff of Annie Hall. Which it is. Which it is. But like, I'm kind of, you know, doing a podcast like this, you sometimes realize that, uh, you know, everything has its fans. Yeah, like, uh, people will often say that they disagree with our opinions, which always takes me aback a little bit, because we are pretty mainstream in what we say. <laughs> like, know. we're not going, Star Wars, piece of shit. Uh, well, I might say that, but okay. <laughs> anyway, thanks, thanks for sharing. I'll, next time I watch Superman, which is probably not in the near future, I'll think about that. And the letter continues, it's great to hear you both bringing up Jonathan Rosenbaum so often, a writer I also greatly admire. I was wondering, have you considered doing an episode on Jacques Tetzi? I found Tetzi's work through Rosenbaum's extensive writing on the filmmaker, and he has now become one of my favorite directors. Keep up the good work. Cheers, Will. I love Tati. Mm-hmm. I would love to do an episode on him. I have not explored his work enough to uh, discuss them in detail, but if we do pick them, then we can talk about them. All right, we'll get what? to them. So for this week's Patreon episode, which you can subscribe to for $5 a month, you get four exclusive important cinema club. <laughs> you get 20-minute discussions about a movie we find on our shelf or sometimes very personal talks about specific subjects yeah like our 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 love lives our you know our relationships with our parents you know exactly um and this week we're going to be talking about the midnight movie uh specifically midnight madness which happened at the toronto international film festival and that uh i've been attending for the last decade usually in its entirety okay and uh this year, uh, my good friend Peter Kaplowski, who I co-programmed something with and who was a guest on the Important Cinema Club, programmed The Midnight Madness, so you ha- we'll have an inside look when we discuss it on this week's Patreon episode. Okay. Next week, we're going to get Classic Hollywood with an episode on director Otto Preminger. Mr. Freeze himself. <laughs> the, he has a massive body of work. Is he considered a journeyman? Uh, I don't think so. I think he's considered an auteur. Yeah, because he was very specific about his films mm-hmm. and was one of the key figures who helped destroy the blacklist when it was happening. Ah, I did not know that. Okay. And we'll be watching uh, his classic Laura and also Skidoo, his attempt to make a film that would speak to those teens out there. Can't wait to revisit. <laughs> Have you seen it? Of course. Oh, I haven't. So it's going to be good. a fun time. Yeah. Until then, the balcony is closed. You know what? I'll give you this one. You can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. My name is Justin DeClue. My name is Roger Ebert. Thanks for listening. So it was the Toronto International Film Festival this week, Will. You get to see all the stars? Oh, God. I saw Adam McGowan walk down the street. I saw Cedric the Entertainer. Did you? 
yeah, at the screening of For- First Reformed that I went to. So you uh, saw a little bit more than six films, right? Um, I think I saw... I'm still seeing a few this weekend. I'm seeing Death of Stalin tomorrow. Oh, it's so good. I can't wait. It's so good. Yeah, and I'm going to see um, the Jim Carrey, Andy Kaufman movie because I got a free ticket. Uh, I was lucky enough to see a whole bunch of films. Mm-hmm. And the lesson I learned this year was if I just go see the good films, I will have a good time. Classic. <laughs> like, you know, I, I remember thinking back on times when I was accredited as as a journalist uh, for when I was a student critic, and I would go see these movies like The Men Who Stare at Goats. Why, like, why? why would I see that at TIFF? What a fucking waste of time. Like, like you can yeah. see so many movies at a film festival like that yeah. that you will never see, yeah, yeah. probably ever, if not just a big screen. I got to see uh, films like Sweet Cut Country, a Australian Western that dealt with racial relations mm-hmm. and had a great Sam Neill performance. High Fantasy, which is a great South African picture about a bunch of teenagers who go for a camping trip in the desert, do some freaky Friday body switching, and then have to deal with the racial repercussions of that. Which has a great gimmick that it's all shot on iPhones within the context of the film. So it's like a found footage picture. Well, I saw uh, Manhunt by John Woo, which I thought was fun. You told me that you were a little bit uncomfortable with the audience's reaction while watching it. Well, it's it's an interesting thing with a movie like that because it's it's undeniably a funny movie. Mm. Not intentionally. Yes. Uh, it's almost like a parody in its style. Yeah. It's like it's pure kind of, yeah, as you said, self-parodic John Woo and... A lot of the scenes in the movie have, uh, there's a Japanese main character and there's a Chinese main character and they communicate in English. Very bad English. Very, very bad English, but in that very heightened, like, John Woo acting style. You've reached an end. A dead end. <laughs> yeah, and so, like, I, I part of me thinks, well, I guess it's okay to laugh at this. Mm-hmm. But then I think, what is the difference between laughing at this and, and, and just not being open to the experience of something? Yeah, I think you there know? is a big difference. Mm-hmm. I think that, like, I'm someone who tends to annoyingly, like, guffaw and applaud when I'm watching a movie that I very much enjoy. Mm-hmm. And it gets, like, a visceral reaction in me, which something like Manhunt will do over and over again. Yeah. I'd like to think that I'm laughing with the film. I'm enjoying what he's doing as opposed to, like we talked about in the bad movie episode, Mm -hmm. laughing because it's so bad and they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Because did we talk about Manhunt last week? Uh, You talked about it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Like I mentioned, it is a movie that feels like it's the final film of a filmmaker Mm -hmm. because it's almost ridiculously packed with John Wooisms. Yeah, it's got the doves. Yeah. It's got, uh, at one point, somebody even w- wishes someone a better tomorrow. And <laughs> the audience applauded. When really? They said that. Visual yeah. doubling and stuff like that. Yeah. I think it also depends on like who you're with. That Did you see it alone or did you see it with someone? Oh, I saw it alone, yeah, yeah. Is that when you're with an audience like that, you're like, I don't know how they're reacting. Like, are they with me or are they against me? Like, I saw it with two people that I knew who were definitely, like, laughing with it. I saw it next to a white guy who I thought was laughing a little too much. Oh, really? Which I think might have soured it a little bit. But, again, I'm not I'm not sure what is too much in a case mm-hmm. like this. But I know it when I see it, like the Supreme Court on pornography. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think it's a movie that if me and you had, like, seen it at the Young and Dundas, you would have probably enjoyed it more. Well, probably, actually, yeah. because we also would have seen it with, you know, a, a more 
predominantly Chinese audience mm-hmm. uh, who probably would have been less inclined to laugh at it. But you also got to see Paul Schrader's first Reformed. Which I very much enjoyed. A film that when you said that you were going to see it, I went, why? Like, Paul Schrader has been shitting the bed for two decades? Autofocus was probably the last really unqualified good movie he made. His film Dog Eat Dog that played last year at Midnight Madness is a huge piece of shit. Okay, I saw Dog Eat Dog with you and some of our friends, mm-hmm. and I was the only one of us who kind of liked it. Mm-hmm. I And I can absolutely see where it's coming from Uh being a film that after um the difficult experience that paul schrader had making dying of the light with nicholas cage Mm -hmm. which was taken out of his hands and recut by the producers he felt he just wanted to unleash himself Mm -hmm. and just do all the ideas that he always wanted to do in a completely incoherent fashion that is not satisfying on any level but i can see why willem dafoe's fun nicholas cage is fun it's got a lot of wacky stylistic stuff in it i don't know maybe if i saw it again in the cold light of day i would because it's a movie that i have to stretch to defend a little (laughs) bit but like i said i can understand why people i found it fun first reformed is a movie that i don't have to make a lot of apologies for it feels like the quint the ultimate paul schrader movie the one that has all of his preoccupations in it it's it's very the style of it is very uh coherent i don't want to do a full Paul Schrader episode, but like for people that don't know, Schrader, the writer of Taxi Driver, is obsessed with Robert Bresson. He's written the book on transcendental cinema, which mostly tackles with Bresson, Ozu, and people like that. And he's gone to the point of recreating the ending of Pickpocket mm-hmm. in two of his films. And it actually, this movie even has a little bit of that when Amanda Seyfried is on top of uh, Ethan Hawke and their hands are together. <laughs> and so the film is about Ethan Hawke, who plays a uh, sick preacher in charge of this little touristy church Mm -hmm. called the first reformed and his struggle with having a parishioner do something bad Mm -hmm. and the way that affects his life i don't want to get too much into spoilers because it's a film that its plot synopsis could be completely covered in about three sentences Mm -hmm. and the variety review on the film completely spoils it oh (laughs) including the final shot of the film oh no (laughs) but i think that with this picture paul schrader has just, I don't know how he did it, but he just figured out what he wanted to say. From the point that the film is shot in the Academy ratio, the like, uh, Diary of a County Priest font from, at like the beginning, yeah. to it's basically a reimagining of that film. Yeah. And an amazing Ethan Hawke performance oh, at its center. Incredible. And it's an interesting marriage of the Robert Bresson style with the kind of taxi driver style. Almost you know? grind a housey style. Yeah, 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 yeah. And at the same time, Schrader is having a lot of fun with the film. Yeah. For all of its stylistic minimalism, it's also like very playful. Yeah, but he does use that transcendental style where he's talked about how the style of Bresson makes you makes you as the viewer interact with it more. You have mm-hmm. to you have to Actively participate. Yeah, because he's giving you less in terms of his, like, shot compositions and everything. What do you think of, like, some critics have come out and been like, this is one of his best films. I think that may just be the result of him not making a film for so long. I think, I think it's probably one of his best films. Well, I, I mean, he's, he's he has a lot of draws in his career, frankly. Yeah, he does. And he has a lot of interesting films that don't quite work, like, that I enjoy, but, like, uh, hardcore. But I think this is definitely, you know, in the same league as American Gigolo or, mm. you know, some, some of the better ones like that. And it's one that his intent... I believe is completely translated to the screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though that he visually references 
the taxi driver by way of Jean-Luc Godard staring at the milk and the coffee thing. With Pepto-Bismol. With Pepto-Bismol <laughs> yeah. in, a, in, a, in a glass of alcohol. Yeah. That's like him being like, huh? Huh? Which somehow is not annoying. Yeah. I would say that this should be his last film, but I it want... It feels like his last but film. I, but I want more. Now, now that now the traitor's back back on his bullshit, I want to see, uh, see more. I mean, that's like uh, a topic for another day, but it's kind of crazy that... He's in the twilight years of his career, and that he can somehow like pull this one out. That's like Jean, that. That's the equivalent of Dario Argento being like, "Here's another Suspiria." Yeah, we've talked about this at times where I'm kind of like, you know, I don't expect that give up. Great you from said. John Woo anymore, but yeah, when some of them can do it, true. Uh, you know, it'd be a great double bill. Uh, first performed in Manhunt, back to back, because they are the pure distillations of both those filmmakers' work. But at the same time, TIFF has been a little bit under fire this uh, mm. year, Will. There was an article that came out in Variety that tried to postulate that. Does the festival feel a little bit smaller this year? And th- that came out a year after they said that it was too big. <laughs> yes. but, but, but in fairness to Variety, I think what they were meaning was its influence is smaller, its impact is smaller. I think that, you know, obviously TIFF has its problems, which I think we talked about two episodes ago mm-hmm. about the way it brands itself. Mm-hmm. And, uh. Still waiting for that call, TIFF. <laughs> yeah, come on, hire us. Uh, but. Part of the problem facing TIFF 2 is just the way that independent movies and film culture are evolving. And how films are distributed. Yeah, like, you know, every everything's shot on digital and, you know, Netflix and Amazon are the major players. And, you know, frankly, pres- Prestige TV, so-called, has, uh, you know, risen at, you know, kind of at the expense of film. So it's less exciting to go to a film festival for all these reasons, mm. you know? I, and that's unavoidable. I still think that there's value in the sense of TIFF will give you hundreds of films that you can not see anywhere else. Some yeah. of them very good. Yeah. But that Variety article, its main bone of contention was, where are the big blockbuster films? Like, yeah. where are the La La Lands? There's none at this festival. Well... Also, uh, the the festival seems to be trying to prioritize world premieres more than it ever has, <sighs> yeah. uh, which seems to mean that we're getting a lot of kind of second tier stuff. If if it's a big movie with big stars that gets its world premiere at TIFF instead of Telluride or the New York Film Festival or or Cannes, you kind of get the sense that there's something wrong with it. Yeah, like Suburbicon opening. Yeah, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, that's not very good. <laughs> And that might just be, maybe TIFF should go back to being Festival of Festivals. Or the People's Festival. Or the, yeah, or the People's Festival. I, like, I, I mean, we don't know the details. It's definitely a money flow thing. Yeah. But if they made it more accessible to people, because it's not really right now. Well, it's too expensive. Yeah. I remember when I started going to TIFF 10 years ago, tickets were 22 bucks, mm-hmm. and now they're 28 to 35 mm-hmm. And th- there's a big difference there, psychologically. Yeah. Once it starts edging to the $30, it's like, nope, not happening. I can't do it. Yeah. But it's still an amazing place to listen to people in line who have no idea what they're about to see. Mm-hmm. When I was watching First Reformed, there was people behind me who were like, what is this film? I don't know what it is. Oh, who's this Paul Schrader guy? Let me look. Huh. He seems to have made Taxi Driver. That's a real old school movie. Oh, man. And then right after that, one of the guys went, hey, I met George Clooney. Yeah, we hung out. And they were like, oh, yeah, really? So maybe that's the audience of TIFF. Sometimes it's fun to see a really confrontational movie. Like I used to, I'm not a particular fan of Kim Ki-duk. Yeah. Sometimes I used to like to go see his movies at TIFF just because like it would be interesting to watch the reaction of the audience. Well, it's a movie like Pieta. It's an audience that is often given these tickets through their 
high class jobs as like yeah. tokens, like oh, go see this movie, or like oh, I, I vacationed in South Korea. Pieta will probably be <laughs> be fun. 